This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everyone. Um, I want to thank everyone who's joining us today from around the world. My name is Imani Perry. I'm a professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, and I am thrilled to be moderating today's conversation. Um, Before I introduce Arundhati Roy, I want to um, tend to a little business. I want to thank the organizer and sponsor of this teach-in, Haymarket Books. Um, Haymarket is the publisher of a number of books by Arundhati Roy, including the absolutely extraordinary collection of her nonfiction essays uh, written over a 20-year period, My Seditious Heart, and the forthcoming book, Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction, which concludes with the essay, The Pandemic is the Portal, which is the title of and foundation for our conversation today. Uh, Haymarket also publishes other critical radical thinkers such as Angela Davis, Naomi Klein, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, and so many others. In this moment in which we are reckoning with crises, um, with suffering, with deep injustice, it's especially important for us to support critical thinkers, freedom fighters, Uh, And as part of that task, I'd encourage you all to buy books from Haymarket, to join the Haymarket Book Club. Now, it's uh, my pleasure to bring in Arundhati Roy, who joins us from New Delhi. Um, And I just will say as a brief introduction, um, as with so many people around the world, um, Arundhati is, for me, a writer who's thinker, who's thinking and critical work and and clarity and brilliance and integrity uh, and ethical witness deeply inspire me. I cherish her voice, um, her character, everything that she writes moves me over and over again. Um, I essentially have the practice if there's something that she's written, I immediately um, uh, read it. Uh, it really is transformative work. Um, so thank you, Arundhati, and welcome. Thank you, Imani. How lovely to see you again. Wonderful. Really, to see you. really lovely in these in these troubled times to mm-hmm. see. Um, I want to begin uh, with the word portal. Um, and I, I, for me, and I suspect for so many people, it resonated deeply. Um, it's an architectural word. It's a technological word. Um, and it, I loved sort of the way in which it's a metaphor, but there's something literal about it that we are co-creators in this moment of the way forward. Um, and I, I wonder if you could say something about that choice of word and the work that it, it, it does for you and for, and for us. Um, I think, uh, you know, 
I think it had it had to do with uh, somehow it had to do with my previous novel. But mm-hmm. when when we were locked down and uh, you know I was thinking, do we do we have a present? You know, because somehow it feels as if we don't have a present, as if there's a past mm. and there's a future. And the present is a transit lounge, you know, with sort of echoes of the past and uh, um, and a premonition of the future that we're trying to stitch our past to our future. And we can't because the present is a rupture. The present is a, you know, and mm. and I was uh, when I said my previous novel, I was thinking about uh, so much of it is set in a in a graveyard in which people live. It's not mm. just a graveyard for dying, you know. And there, there's a moment where I talk about the battered angels that hold the gates open, you know, for mm. for people to come and go, and so for different worlds to meet. And I said portal because I I think that uh, you know just as uh, the world has been frozen in its place and all of us me and you and everyone who's listening and almost everyone else in the world is 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 in a moment of contemplation and isolation and perhaps able to think of a of of a way of trying to undo the terrible wounds that have been inflicted by the human race on this planet that we live in mm. At the same time, there are people who are just the complete opposite of, let's say, you and me, you know, who Mm -hmm. are preparing to move through this portal, deepening the injustice, uh, centralizing the data, you know, thinking of more and more ways of controlling and inflicting more and more damage. Mm -hmm. So... I I really think uh, that when I said portal and that we should, I said we have to decide whether we want to walk through it lightly or whether whether we want to drag the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred and Mm. data banks and dead ideas and dead rivers. Um, I think, you know, it it was, I, I said we, when mm. I know that there, even though I know that there's such a huge conflict in the world, and you can't use that word "we" easily, yes. But it was in the hope that even the people who have, uh, who have so far colluded in bringing the world to where it is now, will use this moment to think and leave behind some luggage and walk through it. Hmm. Um. You know, it and and this. What you just said um, sort of draws me to one of the things that I think is a conundrum of this moment in that this the virus itself betrays rules of borders and statuses. And, you know, that that word pandemic is so powerful because it is an it reaches beyond the boundaries of human um, uh, creation. Um, and yet. We have an architecture of social relations that heaps suffering upon suffering for some, right, and allows for um, the creation of sort of some kind of um, form of protection for others, right? And um, and 
I, I, I wonder um, in this, as you say, this moment of contemplation, um, you know, how, how we get to the point where um, we both sort of are, are wit- reckoning with the human connection, right? Our sort of collective humanity. And yet also, you know, it's so, it seems to me so important to keep hold of the fact that this is not affecting everyone the same way. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, I think what it has done, this virus, is it's worked like a MRI, you know, or like an yeah. X-ray on, 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 on societies and countries and exposed their bare bones and exposed their, uh, you know, almost in the same way that uh, the, the virus seems to prey on people who have other illnesses and, mm. and oh, what they call in comorbidities. It's doing the same thing socially and on societies. It is expanding and amplifying all the weaknesses, all the injustices, all the racism, all the casteism, yeah. all of that. And, mm-hmm. and in, in trying to, uh, uh, you know, and it's also exposing a kind of uh, peculiar, well, in, a, in, the, in the U.S., I mean, for example, you're reading more and more in the U.S., in the U.K., you know, how it's affecting African-American communities, immigrant mm-hmm. communities much more than others. In India, something else has happened, which is that the virus itself has not made itself so manifest yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although you can't trust the numbers because we have one of the lowest testing rates in the world. And what uh, a lot of the tests seem to suggest that it's asymptomatic here, which you don't know. I mean, is it right. some mm-hmm. some people suggest it's a more benign strain. Some people suggest that the the, the heat is 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 the reason why it hasn't really got its claws into us. Mm-hmm. But but the steps that were taken towards handling a crisis that has yet to come has created such a huge crisis in itself and that crisis has affected the poor in unimaginable ways mm-hmm. in unimaginable ways you know so both cases the cure as well as the illness in in america or in uh, europe it's the illness that is that has exposed disproportionately how unjust those societies are and in india it's the steps towards dealing with the virus that has uh, that has done the same thing mm-hmm. can um, you can you talk a, a bit more about how um how that's manifest in india the the sort of the response the response to the to the um virus itself how that's unfolded well um you know a few things happened which is that the first uh, the first case of covid was re- was recorded here in india on the 30th of january mm-hmm. but between the 30th of january and right up to mid march nothing was 
really no nobody paid any attention mm-hmm. uh there were other things to do you know there was um, there was a huge crisis a political crisis in india because uh, of the uh, anti muslim citizenship law that had been mm-hmm. passed in december the, there were massive protests and you know sometimes up to a million people on the street mm. mostly led by women mostly led by muslim women mm-hmm. complete completely non-violent and it was a it was a in a way it was a very exhilarating moment here because suddenly you had people come out to defend an idea of india of diversity of secularism mm. you had poetry and music and a kind of a florescence of resistance that filled your heart you know and this uh this moment uh, uh you know culminated in a in a massacre in delhi uh you know hindu vigilante mobs backed by the police attacked working class muslim areas and about 50 people were killed because there was a i mean people were prepared for this attack and fought back and those bodies were still being pulled out in fact the killing happened while trump was here so Trump arrived in the uh, last week of February in India. Covid was already making its way but you know you had a 100,000 people to greet him mm-hmm. in some stadium and mm-hmm. a million people on the streets and so on. But then uh on the 13th of March the um the uh, health ministry in india said there was no no need to panic and it wasn't an emergency. But on the 24th of March at 8 o'clock at night the prime minister came on tv and gave this country of 1.38 billion people four hours notice that means from 8 pm to midnight and he said there's going to be a lockdown uh, everything would be shut mass transport would mm-hmm. not be available to anybody and that was it so the next day suddenly uh, the cities of india it was as if there was a chemical experiment you know and the hidden peoples the working mm. class people who are who are crammed into the outskirts into dickensian tenement like buildings you know cramped quarters which are actually factory floors you know mm. people working in the construction industry and i'm talking about millions of people it was the 24th of the month they hadn't got paid the landlords told them they wanted their rent they, there was no mass transport and these are all people who 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 are basically uh uh from villages from the mm. countryside mm-hmm. who are young men who come to work in the city uh to supplement the income which has just dried up in uh, in agrarian in the agrarian economy and they had nowhere to go they had no food no money so they began to trek back home like hundreds of kilometers mm. so suddenly you woke up and you saw this this kind of biblical exodus of of people just walking of uh, of mostly men but women and children walking uh these hundreds of kilometers to get to their villages i uh i have a media card so i 
went out and walked a little while to the border of the city i spoke i spoke to people and it was um, you know some they were th- then there were so many videos that i don't know if you saw them of of people being brutalized by the police mm-hmm. not just beaten but humiliated you know made to frog jump down the road mm. Others were caught and hosed down with chemical. Some people who had been walking for days were stopped and told they can't go. Uh, they must go back to where they came from because they would be, you know, spreading the virus. Some people, after days of walking, reached their villages but weren't allowed in. Mm. And that and that situation remains as such right now, where you have uh, you have a, a hunger crisis, then you have this hatred crisis with with yeah. what is happening with the muslim community you have uh, an unemployment crisis which was already a crisis before covid started and and you have this authoritarian lockdown where the prime minister of this huge country without even consulting the 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 minister the chief ministers you know just mm-hmm. just unilaterally ordered this lockdown but now the real problem is how do you unring that bell, you know, because the situation just uh, convulsed into a, in, in, in a way which is very hard to know how to come out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, 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 and sorry, the last thing is that India was already a country reeling under a health crisis. You know, you have like 25% of the tuberculosis cases in the world in India, which is millions of people. Every day, about 1,400 people die of TB. You have uh, malnutrition and little children, a million, almost a million children or something like 800 and something thousand children just die of dehydration and diarrhea. Now, this huge... Mm, this huge health crisis, which uh, and and over the years, of course, just like in the U.S., uh, health public health has been privatized. So now you have twenty percent of the public health system trying to deal with this massive crisis, and these health issues have all been put on hold. So so today you can't tell the contours of the real crisis of mm-hmm. what is going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the, um, things that I, I so appreciated that you wrote about is, is the, the manner in which, um, sort of there's something about the U S that has been revealed to the world in this moment and the thread, you know, that, that, that description you offer there, what becomes clear is there's a thread of connection for working people all over the globe um, with what the ways in which this this virus is sort of stacking upon them, right? Um, and I, at this, you know, one of the things that I have been astonished by just sort of watching news, both you know, nationally here in the States, but also internationally, is that um, even as that's happening, uh, we're we're being sort of very frequently fed this um, almost like sort of idolatry about markets and economies and then this sort of 
the institutions that we are supposed to have this kind of worshipful relationship to, right? This idea that one has to support this world of business that already doesn't um, uh, tend to the majority of people around the world. Um, and so there, that, I think, you know, that it, it, it reveals that there's a demand and requirement at this moment that we have to re-educate ourselves, right? What to have faith in, you know, where to place um, our, our, um, our, our energies. And at the same time, there's this urgency, right? So that there's, we have this, as you said, it's a moment of contemplation of potential transformation. And there also feels, it also feels as though there's this urgency that we can't wait. And it's another one of those push pulls of the moment. Right. Um, and I just, could you, I, I'm wondering sort of how, are, how you, I don't know, distribute your attention or your communication, especially as we're so isolated about how to both sort of serve the potential transformation and also deal with the immediacy of the daily suffering. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, very dangerous position that all of us are in right now, you know, because yeah. uh, you see even when, I mean, if you talk about the immediacy of, of the daily suffering of the illness itself and what yeah. it is doing in a place like the U.S., uh, and what's happening, I mean, I've spoken about, uh, you know, the hunger and the macro mm-hmm. system here. But while this lockdown is upon us, while all of us are locked into our homes, there is no lockdown on totalitarianism. There is no lockdown right. on the massive round of arrests that's happening here in, in, mm-hmm. in Delhi and a round of young students, uh, mostly Muslim, who are all the all the people who are seen as having been part of that that protest are now being accused of murder and of all kinds of outlandish, outlandish things and 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 being put into prison. But I think we, you know, what you're saying, Imani, is very important because I I find myself um, wondering and even wondering if one can dare to wonder about this. Yeah. But while while everybody is so freely using the vocabulary of war mm. to, to to speak about this virus. And I keep thinking, oh, but war is about killing people. And presumably what you're doing is supposedly about saving people. Mm. But but I think it it has to do with the constricted and strangely um, peculiar imagination where you know, you, we, we, and especially Western society, contained inside its ideas of itself as civilized and progressive and all that, is folded in the idea of annihilation. Yes. Contained in the nuclear weapons program, in the chemical weapons program, in the biological weapons program, and the in, constantly held out threat of annihilation of whole populations, whole mm-hmm. landscape, 
whole ecological systems in order to be able to extract what the capitalist market needs. Mm -hmm. So we already know that those wars have filled the world with refugees and they have been so cruel. You know, the the kind of bombing of Iraq, of Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. the sanctions on Iraq where here we are scrabbling around for a vaccine for this virus. Whereas when the sanctions were on in Iraq, you know, medicines were denied to people and hundreds of thousands died. And that was considered a fine strategy, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you, how do you really think about the fact that these very people, this very formation that is dealing with this pandemic and trying to save people as they no doubt are in whatever way they are doing in 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 hospitals and uh using you know bailouts and money and all of that that same power structure is prepared to race towards uh creating a climate crisis which will make the coronavirus look yes benign mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what is so what are we supposed to think of that intelligence you know so can we communicate to human beings that if you're suffering now you've got to walk through this portal with power and say we don't want this earth to be destroyed you know mm-hmm. can we can we can we collectively because it's not going to be given to us like a, a, a you know cut fruit to eat you know we're going to have to fight for it but to fight for it we're going to have to realize that uh, this suffering is going to be manifold you know i mean many times over if if something doesn't change at the policy level not just at the level of boutique uh, let's all be vegans or whatever, right you know? Has yeah. to change at a policy level. Yeah, and uh, how are we going to make that happen? Mm-hmm. So that is actually immediate. It's not, uh, even though it sounds huge, it's actually a, a very immediate moment that we do have to seize because the plans to do otherwise are are on. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. I mean, yes. Right now, what's happening? Right now, what's happening is that national authoritarianism is colluding with international disaster capital and data gatherers, and they are preparing another world for us, mm-hmm. which will be, uh, you know, if 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 corporate globalization was was advanced capitalism. Now we are going to move. I mean, now they would like us to move into a an even more advanced version of that, where you yeah. have, uh, you know, the Gates Foundation owning, more or less owning WHO, designing deciding public policy and how to make massive profits out of whatever protocol is going to be rolled out to deal with this epidemic, you know, and that will involve data gathering and surveillance. And if we were sleepwalking into a surveillance state, now we are panic running into it because this fear is being cultivated in us, you know. Well, that, you know, and I, I, 
it's there is that um, for me the um, related to what you're saying that that the feeling that there is such an extension of surveillance in this moment and submission, right? And that this idea that, well, we have to submit to this the authoritarian um, powers in order to protect ourselves, but it really is, as you're saying, such a privatized notion of even protecting ourselves, right? Not about policy and also not about um, uh the, the earth as a whole, right? This shared space, right? So that, you know, you, we, we agree to, um, uh, to being surveyed and surveilled in every possible way. We are, we accept the, the rules even when they're illogical. And, um, in, uh, in India right now, you know, it's, it's, it's really, uh, there's a, there's a sort of app that the prime minister asked people to download called the Arugya Setu, and it's the fastest downloaded app in the world. Just 60 mm. million people or something downloaded it very quickly. It was developed. The you know the ideas of privacy or any kind of protection of your data barely exist. But um, the thing is. That if you, I mean, maybe one, because we are writers, we are alert to the use of language. But to me, it's terrifying when I read the papers and I I read uh, people who who may or may not have the virus referred to as suspects, mm. right? The, the 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 home ministry pass uh, sent out a circular saying when the lockdown opens, uh, if a person joins an office and is found to have the virus, they will be criminally prosecuted, and so will their boss. Okay, so now you have people who are asymptomatic, who have no idea that they're ill, you know, and now they're going to be criminalized. Or you have another circular which says that the workers who were walking home, who were then stranded or couldn't get home or remain in the cities, they will not be allowed to go home when things open up, but they will be uh, they will be checked. And if they do not have the virus, they will be profiled. They will be their work skills will be profiled. And then, you know, industries which are allowed to open can use them. So, you know, you see all this being put into place. It's. It's extremely disturbing. I mean, if somebody is going to be checked if they're well or not well, yes. if they're well, why can't they go home? That's mm-hmm. what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But no. Mm-hmm. You know, so so this kind of putting into place of 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 these uh, notions which would just, you know, have seemed outlandish some time ago. Uh, and and uh, you know, we 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 rush to embrace them we rush to embrace uh, our own uh, our own incarceration electronic incarceration and humiliation mm-hmm. in ways that are very very uh, very very disturbing you know it's it's um it's 
it's fascinating to me that on the one hand, there are these new um, right technologies of incarceration. I just what you described just reminded me of a a man who was uh, brutalized and arrested here in Philadelphia for not wearing a mask um, by police officers, and which is was exactly the opposite of social distancing, right? But then it becomes another uh, way to legitimate policing and um, state violence. Um, but I was also thinking that the we have these technological forms of surveillance, and then we have very um, kind of old-fashioned forms of brutality and domination. And um, one of the questions that came in, and I want to sort of modify it a little bit, but it was about um, the way that your metaphor of traveling light and light luggage. And um, and thinking about that in light of, you know, when when you wrote about the long march, I also I thought about um, the Trail of Tears in the in the United States with the removal of indigenous people. And you've you've written about that in more recent history um, uh, and um, and also the transatlantic slave trade and forms of deportation and and um, the partition right? that there's this physically moving people about. Um, and, you know, so I guess the question is how you are in some ways subverting that with talking about traveling light, right? A different kind of movement that has a resistance to it. Yeah. And not, not just, uh, I mean, obviously that light was a, a, a metaphorical yes. light, mm-hmm. you know, because, because in truth, uh, when you look at real uh, at real travel, it's the rich who travel light, right? The poor, For sure. Yes, everything with them. You have to have to take so, every, all your belongings. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So, uh, so, uh, but but th- this uh, traveling light, of course, was metaphoric of, of the ability to leave behind old ideas you know mm-hmm. i try to i try to explain to somebody recently and they said uh, you know oh, can you can you can you explain what that means and i said you know um, many years ago a few years ago i wrote i wrote about the uh, the, the the kind of war that's taking place in central india where the government basically has handed over forests, rivers, mountains to mining corporations, infrastructure companies. And these are all indigenous people's homelands, which in in fact is illegal to hand over, but they have been handed over. And so there's actually a war, a guerrilla war being fought there, you know. And I, uh, of, of course, I had gone into those forests and spent weeks with the guerrillas. But one of the things that, that I learned was you know, to fear the flat-topped mountain because mm. the flat-topped mountains usually are, are bauxite mountains. And bauxite is this porous stone that uh, that's on the top of the mountain and it actually works as a water tank. So when it rains, it stores the water and then the, the, the mountains basically uh, let the water out and it nourishes the plains where food is grown and so on. Mm-hmm. And so... And so I, I, I wrote saying that there are two imaginations, you know, one imagination in one imagination, 
that bauxite is worth nothing in the mountain. You have to take it out of the mountain right. and then you have to sell it. And it's, of course, uh, uh, how you make aluminum. <laughs> you need bauxite to make aluminum. And and for the other imagination, the bauxite is only worth anything inside the mountain where it's mm. serving its purpose. And so that essay, I ended with the question, can we leave the bauxite in the mountain? You know, mm, can can we arrive at that intelligence? It's an ancient intelligence, but can you, because unless we can come to that, at some point we will be forced anyway to think of it when, when the resources run out, you know. Mm-hmm. Resources, resources is a bad word to use for, 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 for mountains, you know, because that itself is is the end of imagine end of that, that imagination you know? but anyway can you leave the bauxite in the mountain you know? that's what i mean when i say travel light yes. can we change our way of of thinking about things like that you know yeah i uh, mean no i mean yeah. I, I just have, I, um, you know, I think that that is so incredibly profound, especially now as we witness the earth healing itself because of there being, you know, there's less pollution and the animals are roaming more freely. And there's something that the absence of the ways in which so many industries have slowed down, you begin to see almost a, a kind of regeneration, um, taking place um and then on the other hand uh you know in a place like um coastal louisiana where there's an area um that is referred to as cancer alley where you have the highest rate of death because of the consequences of all of the top you know the environmental um destruction from the bp oil spill and years of these extractive technologies and i think right that can we um, uh, transform the imagination? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and this yeah. moment is so profound. And um, what many of the people who are writing in with with questions are also asking a, a, a related question, which is sort of how do we um, how do we help people imagine working together across the boundaries of the nation state, right? So there's, there are these specific events and times and places, but the lesson they teach is repeated, right? All across the globe. It's a, it's actually very difficult, you know, because as the virus has jumped over international borders, like international capital jumps over borders, yes. but it incarcerates people, you know, it, in, it only works if you can incarcerate people and drive the, you know, drive um, in the drive for profits, you can keep, you can keep undermining how much you pay labor and so on. Um, so, so in a way it's strengthening nationalism and nation state borders we think of the virus what's happening in america what's happening in italy what's happening in europe what's happening in india what's happening in kerala you know everything is we 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 break it down into uh into units which are 
uh, how the earth has been divided into by how the earth has been divided by human beings, how the earth is policed mm-hmm. by human beings, you know. But uh, ultimately, uh, what is happening now, you know, is um, the fear of what what this virus has done, I suppose, is to fear the long supply chain, you know. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a sense in which people are now wanting to be more self-sufficient once again, within the borders of the nation state, but within, let's say, a country like India, which is really a continent and not a country, you see, I, I imagine that yeah. people, these particular workers, for example, who have been treated treated like like uh, property, you know, so badly, are they going to? I mean, maybe they will have to come back and re-enter. Uh, the same machinery that has that has humiliated them and brutalized them the, in the way in which has happened. But on the other hand, you know, for the last 20 years, one has been writing about the fact that you are, uh, you know, brutalizing the countryside and pushing millions of people into the city mm. where you can control them, where you can... Uh, monitor them where you can depoliticize them you know mm-hmm. in in india in fact the villages have the countryside has been often where the great resistance movements have risen you know mm-hmm. so can we actually uh, can we actually reconnect to the land to me is a very important question because what has happened with the market is that you've you have disregarded what land can do mm. i mean in kerala you grow rice because that is what that land supports mm-hmm. but now you want to grow rice in the desert where there is no water so right. you build a dam you take the water there then you salinize the desert then you don't know what to do with the water you know so your your people are growing cash crops mm-hmm. for the but they they're not growing food that they can eat you know there are so many kinds of grain that have um, disappeared though they are so nutritious because that's not what the market wants right. you know so mm-hmm. are we going to i mean i i think this um, this churning should make us ask all these questions to me i've always said you know that for 20 years or 22 years one has been writing this so when someone asks you a question like okay so what is the alternative i say that's a great violence you know to ask like that because the world is where it is because of the millions of decisions that were taken yeah. and and for each of those decisions there could have been another for each big dam that was built there was another solution mm. so we have to undo it like you undo knitting you know like yes stitch it unstitch yeah unstitch yeah yeah unstitch. yeah i and i i think that's so it that's so the the point about the land is so profound to me because um you know i think oftentimes people think of of the 
those who are intellectuals or creative or sort of politically engaged people, that the realm of the imagination is not material, but in fact, um, the political imagination has to be material, right? And so what does it mean to imagine a more kind of harmonious relationship to the earth around us? It's not just extractive and exploitative and... um, it is, I mean, for me, uh, you know, perhaps because I did grow up in a very small village on the mm. on the river and I knew every plant and every beetle and mm. every fish. And to, to me, that made me a writer, you know, yes. that made me want to write about them, mm-hmm. and to write about the landscape, to write about the even here right now in Delhi, where I live, you know, the lockdown uh it's it's been beautiful in some ways because of the, for the animals but also there are so many animals in the city that have grown to depend on human beings you know so you actually right. around my house monkeys and crows and cows mm-hmm. and dogs all of them need to be fed now yeah so, exactly. <laughs> um uh one of the I want to read a couple of questions that have come in, and also to invite people who have questions to to post them or share them. Um, and one of the questions, um, which I, I I think is so profound, um, by a woman named coming from someone named Heather, she asks, "Can you talk about your process of writing when in grief, when watching people suffer, feeling intense intense emotion and observation?" How do you cope with that or channel that while you write? Well, um, I actually, you know, when when uh, the, the, there was a sort of semi lockdown just in Delhi a few days before the big inter, uh, national mm-hmm. lockdown was announced. And I thought, oh, for a and, and, you know, because here was something that one didn't know authoritatively anything about this virus you know and I thought this is the time to to sit down and to to really know that this silence perhaps in a city will never return you know and Mm. so read and think and then when the big lockdown was announced and this exodus began I just lost my equanimity I just lost my peace of mind I I went out and I I I came back haunted uh anyway I'm a pretty haunted person Mm -hmm. you know yeah but but one thing uh one thing about me as a writer is that I never shy away from feeling I just dive into it and I feel grateful that I can feel you know, because mm. I feel that one of the worst things can be when you stop feeling. Yes. So I, I, I feel like uh, I, I live in this world without the protection of even my own skin, you know, like there is no separation between me and the world. And, and, and that's really important, you know, right now, I feel so many things that have that have been done to people and so many so many debates that have happened in the near past you know of uh, uh, debates where people have put themselves into silos and then 
somehow undermined all forms of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I now feel now more than ever, we have to feel each other's feelings, yes. huh. fight each other's battles and and howl and write and think and and not protect ourselves, but protect other people. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, you know, I think part of what I feel when I read your work and, and for me is, is also part of what I, I try to live as that the writing itself is um, in a sense with the grief. I mean, it is, and with the hope that it is part of that encounter with what it means to exist, yeah. right? It's not just a matter of sort of a productivity that is separate from that. It is. No, in, in yeah. fact, for me, um, writing is, uh, writing is thinking. Yeah. Know? So uh, yeah. I write in order to think. Like it's not a product. It's not. It's it's almost talking to myself and trying to uh, trying to to structure myself. And the only way I can do that is is when I write. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think that the only the only reason I write is to stop, uh, is in order not to lose my sanity. Otherwise, I would be a crazy person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, another um, question that came in is, um, can you elaborate about the intersection of the pandemic with military occupations Um in Kashmir and Palestine. That's a, you know, another very important subject because mm-hmm. in in Kashmir, uh, you know, the Kashmiris know how to be locked down, you know, because they yeah. were locked down in August when Kashmir's special status was abrogated mm-hmm. pretty and, and locked down under the most dense military lockdown in the world for months together mm-hmm. and they had just begun to ease the lockdown when COVID came you know and so now they're in a sort of military lockdown and a political lockdown and this viral lockdown so uh, in Kashmir I think I think militarily the armies of the world must be uh, pretty unprepared for this virus and how to deal with it because I don't know how you how you fight wars with social distancing, you know. Right. But but the Kashmiri people are probably um, in once you know for the first time ever probably more um, prepared and uh, they know how to deal with it better than. Indians, but um, also, as I said in that piece, you know, the pandemic uh, in India, a lockdown has meant not social distancing, but physical compression. People mm. are crammed into slum. I mean, in, in Mumbai, you have the Dharavi slum, which has about a million people crammed into two square kilometers. This compression, you know, 200 
people to a toilet. So mm. what sort of a lockdown is that? It's a, mm-hmm. The middle classes are socially distancing. Uh, and, uh, you know, although that's a very ugly term, you know, community that practices caste. So we say yeah. mm-hmm. physically distancing and locked into their homes, but the the poor are, are, are physically compressed. Mm-hmm. But in Kashmir, uh, there is... You know, there's more space. I mean, people are not living in the same ways in which in most places of India, the poor live. There's, you know, people have homes and space, but uh, it has to be uh, it has to be an incredibly confusing time for them, you know, because this maybe is is a is a is a lockdown that they don't resent so much because of the illness but it is the basis of it is 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 kind of uh, uh you know has 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 probably come come at a time when they were still stunned by what has been done to them and what's happening in kashmir now just like what's happening in the rest of india that the the machinery of the occupation, the machinery of putting in place this sort of digesting of Kashmir into the body of India, that there's no there's no stop to that. And mm-hmm. then and thousands of them are still incarcerated, still in jail, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. All of that is still going on, yeah. Um it's interesting the 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 point you made about physical compression made me think about um you know the prison situation in the United States where it just we have the, the most incarcerated population and African Americans are the most incarcerated yes. people on the planet and um that the solutions are either this and you know well the reality is this intense physical compression where the virus you know circulating with virtually no medical care resources or, you know, total lockdown in cells, right, where people are isolated in a way that is literally um, destructive of one's, you know, psychological or or emotional well-being. And um, one of the, and, and that point made me sort of think about one of the questions that came in, um, sort of differently. And the question was, how do we safely protest against this wave of fascism or this moment of authoritarianism? And I, and I thought about it and I said, well, maybe there, maybe one can't do it safely, right? The, um, that safety can't be the imperative, but, um, but I do wonder about how one witnesses and participates in protest and in this moment across these differences and with all of the boundaries that are imposed, um, you know, by the lockdown or the, or the, the the physical distancing or the. Well, uh, I think that, I think that, you know, this point you make about prisons is, 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 you know, when you think about U.S. prisons and who's in them, mm-hmm. it's really, really makes you want to hit your head against the wall. It's unbelievable, you mm-hmm. know. Here in India, too, the prisons are jam-packed. I mean, yeah. really just 
just uh, bursting at the seams Mm -hmm. and still more and more people are being incarcerated as we speak. Um, How do we protest? Well, I think um, think what we're doing now is important and I think it counts as protest, you know, Mm -hmm. which which is to understand what is being done to us. That is the fundamental and the most foundational first step you know, the other thing is that I I think uh, this is becoming so true of the United States and also India. You know, we've begun to think, not you and I, or not maybe people listening, mm-hmm. but a lot a lot of people think that democracy equals elections. You know, and this is the stupidest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thing that has happened right. to us, yes. you, know, where, you know, elections are just one part of it, and one has to, one has to just look. At, you know, sometimes I just look at it as vote for the enemy that you want to have. You know, like absolutely, yes. Vote for some some person you like or believe in because that's hard. But the rest of the time, you know, what do we spend our time doing? You know, mm. and. And I think um, we we have to, I, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to know now about how to protest at this point of time, but this point of time isn't going to last forever. Right. You cannot mm-hmm. have a lockdown forever and nor is this virus going to be around forever, for yes. sure. You know, right. it's, it's going away. And uh, that's when you have to, uh, you really have to uh, understand the business of uh, digital surveillance and of, uh, you know, like, for example, I find it incredible that that at this moment when the crisis of COVID came to the United States, there was somebody who had been talking way before it came about Medicare for all. Absolutely. Yes. That was Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And he he wasn't even considered uh, a viable candidate. Why? Mm-hmm. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so so what is it about us? You know that. Uh, and I mean, I, I'll I'll say that the situation is is much worse uh, here because in India because uh, we have been through some terrible decisions by this prime minister that have really harmed people. And what is it about the psychology of people that wants them to uh, bow down to the source of their tribulation? That is amazing. It's a, it's a, that is an incredibly profound question. Right. That seems to be sort of a necessary step towards towards sort of um, transformation, right? The the walking through the portal is the release of the attachment to to those who dominate, right? Um, I I wonder... Why would would any woman in the United States vote for Donald Trump? Right. After all that he has got to say about us. Mm Mm-hmm. But they will, and they do. So there's this um, this t- 
tension, I guess, because on the one hand, right, there is that, there are those commitments. And then in the last couple of weeks um, in the States, and I think, and even, and I've seen some of this in the UK as well, people are changing pretty rapidly politically, right? So that, for example, Medicare for all is is now seems, I've seen people who were very critical of it in the public arena now seem to embrace it, right? There's been, it's almost, it is, there's this trigger that this moment produces. And I guess the the question is sort of how to, how to extend beyond the immediacy, right? This, this virus won't last forever to it, allowing people to, it being a kind of a lens through which to sort of look prospectively. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how, um, that happens, but that seems to me to be part of right the idea of the of the portal. Um, another question that that was asked is, um, and I think you know many of us just want seek all of the answers to every social problem to you. So <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> but um, but, but um, that I think is a good one, which is you know to talk about. Um, the police state, and this question is specifically about India, but there are versions of that all over the world, right? The expansion of a police state um, and the way in which it makes it so difficult to um, express varying opinions um, and creative ways of imagining the future um, with a very real prospect of being disappeared, or may you know, or or literally, right, or or figuratively, right, sort of, and and the dis, both the decision, but also you know, how do we make wise choices about how to resist? Um, it's a, it's it's you know something that uh, I. I mean, obviously, you know, someone like myself, every full stop, every comma, everything you say, uh, you know, the the kind of attack is is just uh, it's just it's just relentless, it's and, relentless. Yeah. and it's it's relentless on so many people, and it's a constant. You're you're just constantly on on guard about how to how to say the things you want to say and mm-hmm. you know how to live or how to protect yourself in ways and then i keep reading the the russians you know anna akhmatova and and uh, mandelstam and i think you know human beings uh, what all they've been through you know, mm-hmm. in Nazi Germany, under the under Stalin, in China, even now, and in India, you know, um, some people can say things, and some people aren't allowed to say things, and it's a it, there isn't any formula that I can give. You know, yeah. I I I really I really uh, really barely manage to figure it out for myself and that's a temporary thing from day to day you never know when you'll slip and when yeah mm-hmm. you know when uh, you won't be there to say the things that need to be said or ought to be said 
there isn't a formula for it, you know, it's different in different places and you have to figure it out for yourself. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, and I would say that it's important to be strategic, you know, it's important to, it's important to know that there, there isn't protection now in the world somehow, you know, that, that, that we have to make this architecture and this shelter for ourselves, you know, for mm-hmm. me, I, I I just feel like my only protection is is my readers and you know yeah my the writing I mean there isn't any formal sense of protection because what has happened over the last few years and that has been accelerated enormously by this virus every institution of checks and balances has collapsed you know so what is happening in the courts is terrifying and embarrassing mm-hmm. what the police are doing i mean you know you you spoke about them beating up someone because he wasn't wearing a mask here you know they they've beaten to death someone who went out to buy biscuits for his children or you know yeah, mm-hmm. the the what is happening with you know, Muslims and how they are being treated, all of this. And, you you know, to speak about it, like I said, all these young, young, young people are being incarcerated now. So anyway, just to say that I don't have an answer to that question, mm-hmm. except that, that you've got to find a way of doing it and um, find a way of a language in which to do it in, you know. Yeah, which uh, which varies from place to place, and uh, you know what what you can say in India as an upper caste Hindu man is different from what you can say as a non upper caste person. Mm-hmm. Is different from what you can say if you're a Muslim. Is different from what you can say as a Kashmiri. Yes. You've got to know all these unwritten rules, you know. Yes, absolutely. And I, um, you know, that I think that's a, a a much, for me, a useful way of thinking about um, uh, how one engages politically. Sometimes um, people say, well, you, you use your privilege, but this seems to me to be something that is a much more sort of artful um, suggestion about sort of how does one um, navigate the world with an honesty about how you're situated, right? Yeah. Um, and also with an integrity vis-a-vis people who are situated differently than you. Oh, and, and then the privileges uh, also cut both ways, you know, like say mm-hmm. somebody like myself, there are people who, who know that the way to get the attention of the uh, ruling, the rulers is to, like, say, attack you or file yes. against you. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, the the light shines brightly, but that brings danger with it too. With it too. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Um, uh, one of the... Um, additional questions that has that was that someone asked is that um it's about the sort of the habit of scapegoating um in this moment right so they they referenced um uh what has happened in the united states with um the way the the virus has been used by the right wing is as a uh, an occasion to um stigmatize asian americans or we could look at 
China in the way that it's being used to stigmatize Af- Africans and and sort of how to um, it, and obviously that is sort of just a continuation of global practices of of nationalism and ethnocentrism and various fundamentalisms. But um, you know the question I guess is how to resist or how to engage people in ways to resist the othering as a way of responding to to fear, um, which is a huge question, um, but seems to be partially at the core of this, right? Yeah, I mean, that is that is uh, almost equal to the crisis of hunger in India is the crisis of the stigmatization of Muslims. Yeah. So they are being called, uh, you know, this um, COVID jihad and yeah. human yeah. bombs and the spreaders of disease. And, you know, people have been lynched. People have been attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, hospitals have said that, you know, Muslims won't be admitted unless they have, uh, you know, COVID tests or they have separate wards. There was yesterday, okay, two days ago, a woman who who spoke of how she was pregnant, went to a hospital, uh, was was, uh, beaten. And when she was bleeding, she she was told to clean up the blood and beat until she lost her child. Oh. You know, so that that is a very big issue here in in India. Um, what what can we do except stand up and keep keep speaking about it and writing about it and mm-hmm. uh, putting ourselves in the way of it and uh, telling a different story? Yes. You know? Telling a different story. Yeah. 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 There's a um one of the things that I think I was surprised about after the 2016 election here, and I think is um goes back to something we were just discussing earlier, um, is there was a real demobilization um that happened. And, you know, I think because there had been so much political organizing in the states and the in the previous years, there was an expectation, I think, for many of us that it would extend and amplify. And in fact, it sort of there was this sort of profound drop. Um, and I, I do think it has something to do with what you were describing, which is, you know, when when the when what happens with the courts has happened, when what when ev- when there seems to be no place to appeal for remedy suddenly organizing and resistance feel much more dangerous and hard to engage in strategically. Um, And I, so I guess I want to connect that to um, a question that was raised about whether there are specific organizations or, um, uh, you know, people or places that for you serve as models for how one um, uh, sort of models for thinking about how to engage politically, how to resist in, in collectives, are there people, are there institutions or groups that that serve that function for you as a kind of inspiration? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, anybody who reads my seditious heart will yes. see that uh, that's all that one has written about over the years, you know, mm-hmm. there so many resistance Examples, groups yeah. and mm-hmm. so much, 
so much. I mean, for me, uh, I, I always say that my most profound learning came from the anti-dam movement in yes. India, mm-hmm. you know, which has been decimated, but its wisdom lives on, you know, mm-hmm. in yeah. many of uh there 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 have been uh, i mean as i said i spent time in the forests of central india where this uh, guerrilla war uh, mostly waged by indigenous people uh you know mm-hmm. who, who uh, organized themselves under the banner of the maoists but i don't really know how maoists they are but that is a i mean there are 50% of the armed fighters are women there I learned a lot from them too, you know, and so, so much. I mean, that was one of the things that I felt, um, you know, over the years, I used to proudly say, you know, that one of India's best exports is dissent, you know, how profoundly these people's movements understood the meaning then of of globalization and what mm-hmm. privatization and what it was meant to be. And everything that I write about and say is, is it comes from collective wisdom, you know, mm-hmm. groups that have come and gone, who have fought, who are still fighting. But, um, but, you know, the, the, the decimation of them is also something that I have watched, you know? So, but when, uh, for example, when they passed this anti-Muslim citizenship law in December, just before that, I had written a very long piece about this National Register of Citizens, which was happening in the state of Assam, where 20 million people were not on the list. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 million people today, just in one state, in danger of being de- declared stateless. And now they're planning to do that exercise all over India and and I was, I was so uh, so sad about how silent the streets were. And then suddenly, when they passed the law and it came uh, became law, when they passed the bill and it became law, the streets of India exploded. And there was so much beauty in that mm-hmm. resistance. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. The students, the poets, the musicians, the women. You know, yes. especially the women. It was just a display of such uh, uh, such wonderful uh, resilience, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is why now under the lockdown, all those who are seen as leaders of that are being put away so that when the lockdown ends, this movement doesn't start up again because those laws are still in place and that danger is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to stay with with the women. There was a question that came um, from South Africa from someone who was describing, and I think this is the case in, in many nations that in the context of uh, the lockdowns, there has been a dramatic increase in gender-based violence, um, that there seems to be this sort of intersection of patriarchy and um, and the lockdown and the, you know, the militaristic metaphors for fighting. All of this seems to be of a piece. Um, and so the, this person was asking if you could speak to how you see patriarchy at at work in this moment. Well, it's 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 extraordinary that I mean, from whatever studies that I've uh, 
mm-hmm. read about the virus, it seems to be um, it seems to be affecting men more than women. Mm-hmm. But the consequences of it, you know, are going to be affecting women because this dramatic spurt in domestic violence, you think about all the children who are being abused at home, locked in Mm -hmm. there. And the fact that most of the frontline workers, nurses will be women, you know, the yes. mass, the mass of people on the, on, uh, you know, who are who are going to be made most vulnerable to it are going to be women. Yes, and all of it is wrapped up in this language of, of study language of war and mm-hmm. so and so on. So, uh, you know, in any in any crisis, even when, you know, when we were when I was talking about the anti-dam movement mm-hmm. or movement uh, against so much displacement that was taking place in India, ultimately, uh, obviously, the most vulnerable people take the biggest hit, you know. Yes. And so, so part of the part of what I was saying of how this virus uh, exposes the 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 disease or the illnesses or societal illnesses uh, along with exposing what happens with class what happens with sectarianism what mm-hmm. happens with caste is what happens with women you know yes, yes. very much of a piece yeah it is extraordinary right because it is this is a, a an illness that demands care and to use a, a, a warm metaphor um, in the context of of, uh, uh, of it being a moment that requires the kind of work that is often seen as feminized, as less important, but is actually the most essential work, right? To care for um, for. Then one care. one thing I think we should we should we should also say. I mean, although this is not an answer to a question, it's just yeah. a thought that I had, which is that you know perhaps this is the first pandemic that is taking place in this in this kind of connected digitized yes. era mm-hmm. and therefore everyone's panic and everyone's half information and everyone's uh, quarter information is feeding into these huge policy decisions which right. are not based on on real evidence that's you know? right so you have you have these TV channels uh, offering you expert opinions, which are just sort of boys' games, you know. Right. And uh, and I think it's pretty dangerous. This this kind of amplification of of panic and uh, bewilderment and ignorance, and and then every country needs to uh, take a decision based on what. Another, you know, so it's right. a perfect the the idea of the the lockdown in some ways, what it means in Italy and what it means in India or what it means in the US are totally different. Totally so the different. prime minister comes out and says everybody must go onto their balcony and bang their pots and pans because that's what they were doing in Italy. Right. But we in <laughs> India, you know, you're talking about very few people who have balconies, you know, mm-hmm. and right. Who, who, it's just a sort of cut and paste policies that come from this 
you know, so so sometimes I think it's like a panic-demic. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah absolutely. And mm-hmm. then as I think connected with that, the sources of our information are so often driven by a profit motive. So there is a way that panic is, is, is lucrative, right? Yeah. Because it keeps yeah. us watching, right? Yeah. And so that, yeah. that's, yeah. Um, and so that's interesting because on the one hand, we have, I think, we have a responsibility to be a, attending to the rest of the world. And yet we do have to think about approaches and solutions that have a, a local, um, me, are meaningful, with yeah. the condition it's the just it's, it's just so important that you know i mean i i don't know how it is in the us but in in india certainly in delhi i i'm seeing you know these what i call uh, residence welfare associations or people turn into these little surveillance machines themselves you know and sort of uh snitching on each other and suspecting each other and then funneling that suspect suspicion into the police machinery and into the state and so Mm -hmm. it becomes a very dangerous kind of society where everybody's divided instead of uh not you know i think i think the other thing is happening too in some places there's beauty and solidarity and help but in a place where things are already so fraught uh People should be careful of of mm. destroying themselves in this way, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, oh, this is a a a, a beautiful um, question, which is um, about how do you cultivate joy in the midst of all of this, right? Um, and sustain it. It's- well, well. See, I don't think joy should be cultivated or sustained. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's something which one has to know is ephemeral. You know, it isn't yeah. something that you can, uh, ex- I mean, except in the property. Yeah, except when they tell us that we can own it and make it permanent in advertisement, you know, but otherwise it's uh, something which I think is really important. I think it's really important skill to, to, to have the radar and to recognize what it is that truly gives you joy and to know that it's ephemeral. You can't hold on to it yeah. for that why it's so beautiful when it comes and it goes and it comes but like I said you know uh, as a writer uh, as a writer especially as a fiction writer I value every feeling yes you know, I I actually just uh, I think you know sometimes the modern world has been sold this idea that somehow we are entitled to happiness. We're not, you know, that's a ephemeral thing. And yet uh, to be unafraid of feeling somehow is is a powerful thing, you know? Yes. Sometimes grief can just tear you apart, no? But... I don't know, maybe uh, sometimes I think that uh, perhaps because 
feelings and um this is the alchemy of the work that i do you know that i write so maybe that's what makes me say this because there's a way in which i i i, I can do something you know which mm-hmm. which 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 helps me which doesn't break me even when the grief is yes very acute mm-hmm. whereas perhaps if i didn't have that exit that ability to write it i may not be saying these things but i don't know well i i but i i think that there is something very um bourgeois and western and particularly american about the idea that you can um evade discomfort or create a life without suffering which um which is oftentimes sort of a a, a life of things right and distraction that there is that, that some degree of discomfort is is unavoidable and it um that what you described about writing is also about sort of living a life that has meaning right or that which is different from happiness but you know and and is sustaining in its own way even in the most painful moments yeah i mean it's like i i i know and remember with great uh, affection and love you know being in the most let's say sometimes dangerous and sometimes uh, very very tense situations you know whether it was when we are walking through the fields and go early in the morning and capture a dam site like huge mm. numbers of villagers women and the police are there and everyone is getting arrested or whether i whether it was when i was in the forest walking with the comrades mm. you know there or whether you're in kashmir there is never an absence of humor there's never an absence of yeah. you know there's even even though th- there's always the the tension of of the struggle but there's you know everything changes all the time it's n- never that it's just one thing you know everyone's not just fighting with a stiff upper lip yes. there's always something mm-hmm. ridiculous that happens mm-hmm. and everyone just just cracks up you know mm-hmm. even though you know that the next moment is not going to be good for you you know but whatever yeah. Yeah. So I I think um that's also part of traveling light, you know. Mm-hmm. Not wanting not wanting to build anything, you know, not even like a tower of happiness for yourself, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And well there's I mean I I I think and I don't know if if this is a term that you would use so please correct me if i'm i'm wrong and but one of the things that i um deeply appreciate about the way you write is that you attend very carefully to particular crossroads both in fiction and non-fiction and um it in such a way that it 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 is I always think of it as sort of post ideological in the sense that it's not about the binaries of making sort of this argument for the organization or this solution but actually about the the what it means to be with 
um, other human beings and the planet and to do that in a way that is deeply um, uh, respectful and loving, right, at every level. And, um, and I do think that that is challenging for us at times because we're trying to think about how do you organize a society, but it keeps, to me, it, it, it always feels as though you continuously ask the question, right, of, well, what, do, what are we attending to? What are we failing to attending to? And how does that um, make us... Um, you know, uh, make the future possible in one way or another, as opposed to let's place this model on the circumstance. I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of what I write, even the nonfiction is informed by the brain of a fiction writer, not by the complicated mm-hmm. and unindoctrinated brain of a fiction writer was always aware of the I mean it's like I can't see myself having a single feeling at any given point of time you know it's always like a whole bouquet of things you know mm-hmm. so it's always uh, it's 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 uh, it's always uh, it's always that complex negotiation of what's going on and to be aware or or maybe even you know as a person who studied design or architecture you know you're you're always aware of all the things that go into a particular moment or a particular thing that you look at you know Mm -hmm. or all the colors that go into one color yes into the making of one color so it's it's a Yes, I think uh, I think there's 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 that when you tell a story, and even my nonfiction is always the telling of a story. Story. Mm-hmm. And when you tell the story, then then you see everything around somehow. You know, it's mm-hmm. a way of seeing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you are there um, are there particular writers or stories that you're returning to as you think through this moment? Well, uh, right now I, I see, I just been reading, uh, the Russians, you know, and I, yeah. I just read this huge, that's how, uh, the, 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 there was, there's this, uh, Russian writer called Vasily Grossman and mm-hmm. he wrote for the, the first book of his that I read was called Life and Fate. It's like, the war and peace of the second world war but i okay. found it incredible and then now the the book that preceded it but was only recently translated oh it, 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 it's it's you know i was really sort of immersed in this universe uh just before uh of course i i wrote the pandemic is a portal and you mm-hmm. know, it became so so I I think I'm reading people from another era but not you know mm-hmm. somehow somehow dissolving in another time but to see how how complicated and what what human beings went through and have been through you know we are we're, we're not the first to go through what we're going through but I think uh, the 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 condition of the earth was not something that was in such crisis earlier as yes. it is now. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of oceans full of plastic, of 
ducks and wild geese with oil stuck in you know oil slicks and um dead rivers these things are you know difficult to you know while while this pandemic is raging trump has given orders for the moon to be mined <sighs> yeah it's hard to even contemplate that yeah idea um are there um i we're we're about at at time i guess and i i i want to thank you so much um for for both the, the your piece and for having this conversation and i am waiting with bated breath for the for the the book i uh, are there I guess things that you'd want to say to um that we haven't covered that the people from literally all across the globe who are who are witnessing this conversation you'd want them to think about or attend to I just I just I just want to briefly repeat that you know this is a, a a moment and we will be moving through a portal and there are people who are preparing the worst kind of uh solutions to the problems we are facing mm-hmm. solutions which will deepen inequality which will further wound the planet which will increase surveillance which will humiliate us as human beings and humiliate the spirit of the human race we cannot agree to live under electronic surveillance mm-hmm. even even at the cost of you know our health or whatever everyone has been through health crises before we've been through the plague we've been through black death nobody agreed to have these electronic handcuffs nobody agreed to have chips put into their brains mm. or their bodies mm-hmm. so please for heaven's sake do not agree to any of that absolutely Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you and your work and it's wonderful to see you even, you know, under these difficult circumstances. I feel um some hope in the midst of all of this. Um and to uh everyone watching, I hope that you will also um share this conversation with um your friends and um please stay posted for the May Day um events that Haymarket is hosting as well and um thank you for all for watching and thank you Arundhati so thank much thank you Mani it's so, such a delight to speak to you lots of love lots of love to you too <laughs> right, take care bye bye thanks for listening if you liked this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org